Uh, well, uh, it is good to be with you this morning. My name is Brand. I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, thankful to get to worship with you. If you are new or visiting, especially want to welcome you this morning. Just glad that you would join us for worship and, and looking forward to our time together in God's Word. I trust that it will be helpful and good for you and, and uh, just looking forward to that. So uh, if you've been here, you know that we're walking our way through the book of 1 Corinthians and and if you were here last week as we celebrated Easter together, then you'll know that we uh, had been in chapter 5, we had worked our way through chapter 5, and then we jumped ahead to chapter 15 just for funsies, or because chapter 15 is all about the resurrection, and what better of a time to talk about that than Easter. So don't worry, we'll come back to uh, the rest of the bunch of chapters in there, there's just a whole lot of fun stuff that we can't afford to miss anyways, and so looking forward to coming back to that with you guys in a couple weeks, but... Um, what we saw last week in the first couple of verses of chapter 15 is, was, uh, was this claim that the, the resurrection of Jesus was not merely a spiritual reality, but instead that it was a, a historical, physical reality, that it, that it actually happened. You see, Christianity is not built on good teaching or moral principles. It's not, it's not built on just philosophical ideals. It is built fundamentally on the claim that Jesus lived, that he died, and that three days later he rose from death, conquering Satan and sin and death, and that he wasn't resuscitated, he wasn't reincarnated. The Bible says that he was resurrected. And we don't have time this morning to go through all of the supporting evidence that we walked through last week as to why we can have confidence in the truthfulness of that claim. But if you missed last week, I'd really encourage you, find that sermon online. Just really helpful stuff as we think about having confidence in what we believe about Jesus' resurrection. So I'd point you that direction. But suffice it to say, Paul and many others were not only convinced that Jesus actually, physically, really rose from death, but that the whole message of the gospel and therefore the entire Christian faith hinges on the reality of Jesus' resurrection. Paul says in verses 12 through 19, last week we saw how that if Jesus didn't actually physically rise from death, that Paul's preaching is worthless, that our, that, and so is our faith, that, that everybody who's died believing in Jesus is just actually dead. And that's the end. And there isn't anything more to it. And there's no reason of any kind of a hope beyond the grave. And sin and death, they win. And we're just, basically, we're just pitiful fools who are wasting our time. If Jesus didn't raise, there is no point to any of it. And Paul's driving home this point because there were some in the Corinthian church that were doubting that Jesus or anyone else, for that matter, could actually rise from death. You see, not, not unlike our own culture, the very idea of a physical resurrection just seems kind of crazy. It's just kind of an option that's, that's not really on the table, right? It's just one of those things that we don't really, just our culture just doesn't really even see as in the realm of possibilities. And yet, here Paul is insisting that if you don't have the resurrection, then you don't have anything. If Jesus didn't actually, really rise from death, there is no point to any of the rest of it. Pack it up, go home. It's the, it's the, the resurrection is the bottom piece on the Jenga tower. You take that one out, everything falls, always. And see, and the good news that Paul reminds us of, as we saw last week, is that, is that Jesus did indeed rise from death. And so the opposite of all those things is true, that he really actually physically rose from the dead. And the, the even better news that we're going to see Paul flesh out this morning is that because Jesus rose from death, all those who by faith belong to him will one day rise from death just as he did. 
That because Jesus rose from death, that, that whoever, all those by faith, belong to him will one day rise from death just as he did. See, the, the reality is that Jesus' resurrection, Paul's going to lay out for us this morning, it's a, it is a promise and a preview of our own future resurrection. But more than that, it's not just a promise that gives us some kind of a hope for the future only. It's a promise, it's a preview that actually radically transforms how we live our lives today. Man, it's such a good passage this week. I can't wait to dive into it this morning. But uh, before we dive in, I just, I just got to say one last thing before we dive in this morning. Uh, one, some passages, as we study them, are kind of light and easy, right? They're, it's like, hey, you can read it, and you're like, wow, that was really encouraging for my soul, right? You know, it doesn't take a whole lot of focus, right? This is pretty straightforward. Others, like our one this morning, you kind of got to like buckle up. Right, you might need to pour the second cup of coffee, right? Take your Adderall, whatever it is you gotta do. Like, you gotta focus, right? And that doesn't mean that it's too hard to understand or that it's not important or that it's not, that it's not, uh, that it doesn't matter. But it just means that, that some things are harder to understand than others. And so we gotta think about, think clearly about it and think robustly about it. And so, and also we've gotta ask the Spirit of God that He might help us to rightly understand it. Because without Him, we don't really have a chance. And so, um, so, that, so it's really important that we do that. And so secondly, uh, we're just not going to have time to address everything that's going on in this passage. It is deep, right? There is a whole lot here. And, and so what I want to do is, is just on the front end to say, if there are questions that this passage raises for you um, that we don't have time to get to this morning, I just want you to know that it's not that those questions don't matter or that I didn't even have them. It's just that we just don't have time for everything here this morning. And so if you do have questions that our passage raises, man, I'd encourage you, follow up with me. I would love to to talk through that stuff with you and process that with you. And, and I don't always have all the answers, but I do certainly have time to honor your questions, and I would love to help you think through that. And so, um, so on the front end, uh, buckle up, right? Because it's going to be an interesting ride this morning, okay? All right, let's pray. We're going to need it. <laughs> Jesus, thank you for our time together in your word this morning. We are grateful for it. God, as we uh, just this morning, as we wrestle with a text that is uh, just not easy, that's not simple, God, but one that is indeed good news. God, we just humbly come and ask that you might, by your spirit, help us not only to understand what your word has to say, Jesus, but that you would empower us to live new lives in light of the truth of your, of your word this morning. And, and so, God, we really need you. God, we need you for every part of our gathering this morning. Without you empowering our time together, without you empowering me to preach and teach and enabling us to hear and listen, God, there's just no point to gather. But we know that you love to meet us in our need for you, and you love to show yourself to us in your word. And so we just humbly and expectantly just wait to see how you will do that, God. And so we ask all of this, God, for, for our good, but more than anything, we ask it for your glory, Jesus. So to that end, let's, we pray. Amen. All right, so uh, we are in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Our, our main text is going to be in verses 20 through 24, the, uh, 20 through 34 this morning. Uh, but I'm just going to read a little section from 12 to 19 that just kind of sets up where we're headed this morning. So uh, we're beginning in verse 12 here for a little bit of context. Paul writes, he says, But if it is preached that Christ has been raised from the dead, then how can some of you say that there's no resurrection of the dead? For if there's no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. And then those who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, 
we are of all people to most to be pitied. Verse 20, he goes on. But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. And for since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead also comes through a man. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ will all be made alive. But each in turn, Christ the first fruits, and then when he comes, those who belong to him. And then the end will come, and when he hands over the kingdom of God to the Father, after he has destroyed all of the dominion and authority and power, for he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. And the last enemy to be destroyed is death, for he has put everything under his feet. Now when it says that everything is put under him, it's clear that this does not include God himself, but who put everything under Christ. But when he has done this, the Son himself will be made subject to him who put everything under him so that God may be all in all. Now if there's no resurrection, what will those do who are baptized for the dead? Buckle up for that one, right? And if the dead are not raised at all, then why are people baptized for them? And as for us, why do, we why do we endanger ourselves every hour? I face death every day. Yes, as surely as I boast about you in Christ our Lord. And if I fought wild beasts in Ephesus with no more than human hopes, then what have I gained? If the dead are not raised, and let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Don't be misled. Bad company corrupts good character. Come back to your senses as you ought, and stop sinning for there are some who are ignorant of god i say this to your shame all right we there's a lot going on in our passage this morning here let's see if we can work through it and help make some sense out of what's here Basically, what you need to understand is a, is a big picture of chapter 15 is that, that the whole point that Paul's trying to make throughout this whole chapter is that, that Jesus' resurrection is both the model and the means for our own resurrection. That Jesus' resurrection, it's both the, the model and the means for our own resurrection. Verse 20 highlights how Jesus' resurrection is the model for ours. Right? He says, but, in Christ, if, but Christ has indeed been raised from the dead. He's the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep, right? I don't know about you. I didn't grow up on a farm. I'm, agriculture is not my strength. Maybe it is for years. We are in Iowa after all, right? Um, but that language of first fruits, right? It's an agricultural term. And, and it, it, it's referring to, uh, it refers to the very first part of a harvest, the, the first showing of a given harvest. And, and first fruits, they, they serve both as a, as a kind of a promise and a preview of the greater harvest that's coming, right? The first fruits obviously indicate that there's more fruit to come, right? Because it's not all the fruit, it's the first part, right? Which means that there's more after it. But also the, the first fruits, they're a preview, right? They give a glimpse as to what the rest of the crop is going to be like. You see, and Paul is saying here is that Jesus' resurrection, it wasn't just this kind of one-time event that was never meant to be repeated again. It, it, it wasn't just this one-time thing that was this special occurrence, although it was special. Instead, Paul says that it's the first fruits of God's greater plan of resurrection. He's saying it's the model, it's the preview of a coming resurrection for all those who have fallen asleep, for all those who have, who have died believing in and belonging to Jesus. And Paul says, basically he's saying, just as Jesus rose again, not merely to just to die again, but he rose with a transformed physical body that will exist forever. 
so too will all those who have died trusting in him rise again with new physical bodies that will be resurrected, new resurrected bodies that will be with him forever. You see, the point of the resurrection is not simply that God did something remarkable one time, that he did something incredible in one, for one person in Jesus, but, but that in and through the resurrection we, get resurrection, we get this promise, we get a preview of God's ultimate plans for renewal and redemption and for restoration of all those things that belong to him. And I want to be clear that, that the Bible says for those who trust in Jesus, there's, there's kind of this intermediary state where, where bef- between when we die and when Jesus returns to kind of usher in his kingdom, that, that, that our souls will be consciously present with God. And so there's kind of this intermediate state, right? But the Bible is also clear that God's ultimate intention is not that Christians would just be kind of like disembodied souls floating around forever, right? Just like having a good time in the clouds. But that we would live with him forever as whole persons, body and soul, right? All of us together. And so when one day when Jesus physically does return to consummate his kingly rule and reign, right? As he promised repeatedly that he would do, then there's going to be a physical resurrection of our bodies. And I realize that raises at least 25 more questions about what that looks like and what what any of that is about. And we're not going to get to any of that this morning. Trust me, though, next week we will, I promise. we got a bunch of verses, deals exactly with that, and we'll walk through it together next week. But the point is simply this, right? That just like the first fruits of a harvest are a promise, they're a preview of what is to come, so too Jesus' physical resurrection. It's a, it is a promise, it is a preview of the physical resurrection that is to come for all those who would belong to him by faith. You see, but Jesus' resurrection, it's not just the model, right? It's not just the promise. It's not just the preview of our own resurrection. It is also the means by which any of that is possible in the first place. Right, last week we saw in verse 17, Paul, he says that if Christ has not been raised, then your faith is futile and you're still stuck in your sins. You are dead in your sin. But because he has indeed been raised, then the opposite is true, Right? Our faith isn't futile. It's not worthless. It's it's worth everything because it's through faith in Jesus that that our sin is forgiven, that it's removed and paid for. You see, Paul goes on in verse 22. He says, "For for as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. But each in their turn, Christ the firstfruits, then when he comes, those who belong to him. So here's the deal. From the beginning to the end, the Bible says unequivocally that the result of sin is death. That sin always leads to death. And because of Adam and Eve's sin, we are all sinners born into a reality that is marred by sin and spiritual death. And spiritual death, it always leads to physical death. And that's what Paul is talking about when he's talking about how in Adam all die. But Paul is saying as well that that's not the end of the story. Yes, in Adam, all of us die, but but Christ came to overcome the curse of sin and death and so that those who belong to him, instead of dying simply forever in Adam, will be raised to new life, will be made alive. You see, what Paul's trying to emphasize here is that belonging to Jesus, that being in Christ, that that's the thing that guarantees our future hope of resurrection. Galatians chapter 3, 26, it says that, that it's through faith in Christ that we become children of God. It's through faith in Christ that we belong to God. 
It's through faith in Jesus' perfectly lived life and his substitutionary death and his victorious resurrection on our behalf for us that we go, in, that we go from being in sin and in Adam and in death to being in Christ and belonging to him and so having an unshakable hope and a promise of a future resurrection from death ourselves. It's so important that you see this. What Paul doesn't say is that it's, that, it's, that it's your performance, that it's your good work that secures your resurrection hope. See, it's, it's instead it's Jesus' perfectly lived life. It is his good work credited to us by faith that brings us into his family and belonging to his kingdom. It's, it's faith in his death that fully pays our penalty for sin and rebellion and the belief that when Jesus rose from death that, Easter, that first Easter morning, that he rose from the grave carrying the receipt for our sin and rebellion paid in full. And it's faith in him alone that moves us from life in Adam and death to being alive in Jesus now and forevermore. You see, and because Jesus' resurrection is not only the model, but it is also the means for our own resurrection, then you can have this incredible, unshakable hope for your own resurrection. You see, Jesus defeated death, and by faith in him, so will you. If your faith is in him, then you don't have to fear death, and you don't have to run from it, and you don't have to do everything possible to avoid it, because Jesus already defeated it. He already won, and, and if he can defeat death, then there is nothing else that he cannot defeat. You see, the resurrection means that our hope isn't in something here and now that can be taken away. It is in something eternal that is kept by Jesus himself. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 and 4 tells us that God's given us birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead into an inheritance that can't perish, that cannot spoil, that will never fade. He's saying that death, it doesn't have the last word and sin doesn't have the last word and suffering and pain, they do not have the last word that Jesus does and that the reality of his physical resurrection is a preview and a promise of our own future physical resurrection. It's good news that gives us this incredible hope for the future that cannot be taken away. And it's at this point that, that hopefully you are encouraged and maybe even a little bit excited about one day when Jesus will return and a resurrection of life will happen unto a new eternal ends. But, but the question now is, uh, what's the big deal with it being a physical resurrection? I mean, Paul literally spends like 60 verses like hammering home that it's not just some spiritual reality that this resurrection is being. So it is a physical reality and that, and that this Jesus is, that both Jesus' resurrection and ours will not be merely spiritual, but will be physical in nature. And so the question is, why does that matter? Why do we need physical bodies anyways? I don't know about you. I've never been especially fond of mine, right? I mean, uh, I mean besides a quality beard, right? I really don't have that much going for me, right? Uh, it is a good thing my wife was not deeply committed to some uh, ruggedly good looks or something like that, right? The only kind of shape I have ever been in is round-ish, right? And uh, if you watch the sermon videos online, you'll know that it's kind of getting thin up here, right? Like it's not, it's just not going great, right, for me. And so, and so, uh, so if I'm honest, I feel like, man, leaving this sucker in the grave, I'm cool with that, right? Like, I just, you know, we, we had a good run. 
Let's leave. Let's just call. Let's call it good, right? But like I said before, not only will our resurrected bodies be transformed, renewed, not just resuscitated, but resurrected, transformed new bodies, but that, but that God's ultimate intention is not that Christians would be just disembodied souls, right? But that, that we would live forever with him as whole persons, body and soul. And understand why that's the case. You've got to go all the way back to Genesis 1 and 2 and see why that's so important. And when, when you go back to what you see are a few really important things in that creation account. The first is that when God made this physical world and our physical bodies, he called it very good. Right, now, sin has ruined all that and brought with it the curse of death, and that's why your back hurts when you wake up in the morning. I know mine does, right? And that's why you get sick, right? And that's why there's all kinds of problems and disorder in our bodies and in our world. Sin has ruined all of that. But, but originally, God made this world, and he made our bodies good. And secondly, even importantly, more importantly, what we see is in those early chapters in Genesis is the, the purpose for which God created this physical world and our physical bodies. In Genesis 1, throughout the Bible, what's clear is that, is that the, the whole point of creation is to reveal and to reflect something about the Creator. It's to reveal and reflect something about the creator. Psalm 19, verse 1, echoes Genesis 1 when it tells us that the heavens, they declare the glory of God, that the, the skies proclaim the work of his hand. You see, in, in the beauty of creation, in its intricacy, in its vastness, in its wonder, the creation, it reveals something about the creator. It brings glory to him. And when you look at verses 26 and 27 of Genesis chapter 1, what you see is that in a very distinct and unique way, humanity reveals something about the creator God. Verse 26 and 27 says that God made mankind, he made humanity in his image, in his likeness. And that doesn't mean that we physically look like God because God is spirit, but instead, it, unlike any other part of creation, we as God's image-bearing people, we have a capacity to know God and to reflect him to, with our nature and our character and the way we relate to the rest of creation on his behalf. And that's because like any, like, unlike an animal or a tree or a rock, we have a spirit. There is an immaterial, non-physical aspect of our being by which we can relate to God and his creation. The reality is you have a soul, right? You're not just meat, right? There is a spiritual aspect to your body and to who you are. And if you continue reading in Genesis 1 and 2, you see that this distinct identity as God's image bearers of God, it directly is tied with our activity as God's image bearers, right? Verse 26 in Genesis chapter 1, it tells us that God made us in his image so that we could rule over creation. Verse 28 tells us that Adam and Eve, God gives them the command to fill the earth, to subdue it, and to rule over it. And so being God's image bearers is not just about some quality that we possess. It's, it's about something that we embody in what we do and the way that we live in our physical bodies, in our lives. And so the problem is just like Adam and Eve, you and I fail to understand and live in light of our identity as God's image bearing representatives. We do that all the time. Our first inclination is, is not to submit to God and to live for his glory and to reflect him. Our first inclination is to live for ourselves. And to make ourselves God, right? And for us to be the ruler and the most important thing in the universe. But 
The reality is that sin has cracked our reflecting mirrors of God, our image-bearing mirrors, making it impossible for us to image God rightly. You see, but the reality that Jesus accomplishes, right, is that there was one who came and perfectly reflected the image of God. And he did that in a body, a physical body. Colossians chapter 1 tells us that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. Hebrews chapter 1 verse 3 says that Jesus is the radiance of God's glory. He is the exact representation of his being, right? And as we look at verses 24 through 28, we don't have time to do the deep dive on all the subjection and dominion and all the stuff going on in there, but the big idea is that with all this ruling and subjection language is that through the resurrection, what Jesus is doing is he is taking back dominion over creation, the dominion that God intended for humanity to have as his image-bearing people, that Jesus is taking it back. And he is doing what we were always intended to do. And he is being what we were always intended to be, the perfect image of God that reflects him unto his glory. You see, and where we failed, Jesus did not. And where we, and we, he bore the image of God perfectly and he did it for us. He did it on our behalf, but you gotta see this this morning. Jesus just didn't do it for you so that you would never have to do it. He does it for you on your behalf. He does it so that we could become what God always intended us to be. You see, his life and his death and his resurrection was about redeeming all of creation. It was about restoring it to the way it was supposed to be, to its original intent and original design. And he did it so that as God's image-bearing people, we might fill the earth as reflectors of God's glory, both now and forever. And to do that, you need a physical body. So that's why it's so important. That's why it matters that our resurrection is not just spiritual in nature, but is physical in nature, because it's tied up with our identity and our purpose for being. You see, the Corinthians, they lived in this dualistic culture that saw the body and the soul as these two separate things and that finally at death that, that you get to escape the, the confines of the body, that the body was a problem and the soul was good and you finally you get to escape the confines of the body. But the message of the Bible and of the resurrection is not that our souls are the only thing that matters and that our body's just this temporary problem that we gotta deal with, but instead that our bodies are an integral part of our very identity and purpose as God's image bearers both now and for eternity. And so God's plan with the gospel is never about escaping and abandoning this world, but about rescuing it and about redeeming it, about returning it to what he always intended and made it to be. See, Colossians chapter 1, 19 and 20, it tells us that Jesus was made flesh for the very purpose of redeeming all things. Romans chapter 8, 21 through 23 says that the, the physical resurrection will be, will be this physical creation will be liberated from its bondage when we are transformed into glory, when we are resurrected ultimately. Verse 23 highlights how this salvation involves the redemption of our bodies, not the discarding of them. One commentator, I think it's really helpful, he sums it up this way. He says, Jesus' resurrection is the starting point and the means whereby the creator God in completing the work of rescuing and renewing the original creation begins. 
You see, and so this life is not just about waiting around for an escape route. You see, our lives instead are a rehearsal for eternity. You see, the point is that we might begin to live now in light of the eternal reality that will exist forever. See, it's the old adage, right? The way you practice, that's the way you play, right? That's how it is. Jesus is saying, this is, Paul saying, this is the future reality. And so live like that now. Don't waste your time living for yourself thinking there's no return and there's no resurrection. What you do in this body doesn't matter. He says, live like the future is happening now because Jesus guarantees it. And his resurrection is the promise and the preview that that absolutely will happen to you. And so you get to live now in light of the future because you know it's sure. See, and the reality is, is that we, and we don't believe that and, and it doesn't just affect our faith, it affects our lives as well. That's what Paul's getting at in, in verses 29 through 34. He's pointing out that how what you believe about the reality and the nature of the resurrection has profound implications for the way you live today. He's, Right? He says, the way you view the end, it always changes how you live now, right? My kids are little, right? Let me tell you this. The, if they know how a movie ends, changes how they watch it, right? right? As a new parent, you find out what things are rated PG for uh, mild peril, right? Which is like any form of anything possibly could go wrong in a movie or something. Anyways, right? See, the reality is, is that when they know the end of the story, right, where they were once afraid, now they are brave. And when they were once anxious, now they are confident. When they were once worried, now they are hopeful. You see, the same is true for us in our real, actual lives. You see, the way you view the end, it changes how you live now. Verse 29 and 32, Paul is basically saying that, that if there's no bodily resurrection, then their baptism and his ministry, they're pointless, they're useless. What is the point of any of that? Verse 29, he writes, if the dead are not raised at all, then why are people baptized for them? And again, we do not have the time to do the super deep dive on what's going on in the specifics of that verse, especially since pretty much every commentator begins with some version of, uh, yeah, that one's a little difficult, right? Uh, they're all like, nobody's 100% confident on exactly what Paul's referring to here. And, and so keeping that in mind, we want to look at what this verse has to say through the lens of, of the, the theological idea of perspicuity, which just means that it's a big theological word that means when you're reading the Bible, you interpret the unclear stuff in light of the really clear stuff, right? The things that are clear like inform how you look at the stuff that's a little confusing, right? And, and also that you don't form doctrines on a text that's unclear, right? That's what cults do, right? Cults take the weird verses make everything about the weird ones, right? And then everything is just like jettisoned off into crazy town, right? Um, right? And a number of cults have used this verse to jettison everything off into crazy town, right? You see, when it comes to baptism, the New Testament as a whole, and Hebrews 9 in particular, it teaches that, that it's appointed once for someone to die and then judgment, right? And so you live, you die, you get judged, and you either go to heaven or hell, right? And that's the end. You see, and so, and so additionally, in, in the New Testament, it's clear that the, that the basis on which we are judged is our faith in Jesus, right? It's our faith in him, and it is a personal faith in Jesus, right? It's not that someone else can trust Jesus for you. You have to do it yourself. And so Paul is not talking here about, he's not saying something about 
People getting baptized on behalf of the dead and how that's something that people should be doing, right? Because that would contradict everything else that is abundantly clear in the New Testament and in Scripture. And nor is he condemning whatever it is that they were doing, which if you read the rest of the whole thing, he, the rest of the whole book, he is really not hesitant to do, right? The whole book is him laying the smack down, basically, right? And so if there was a problem with what they were doing, then he would have addressed it. And so what's going on is the question here. And well, like I said, every good commentary lays out a couple of options, but I, I think the best, most clear understanding of what's going on here is that, that people were getting baptized. They were publicly professing their faith in Jesus, at least in part, because they wanted one day to be reunited with their family or their friends who believed in Jesus and who had died. They wanted to be sure of seeing them again. You see, there's nothing wrong with that. My grandparents, when my grandparents and my uncle died in the past couple of years, I was sad about that because I loved them. But the reality is, is that I knew that I will see them again because they have professed faith in Jesus, and so have I. And so there's a hope not only for my resurrection, but for theirs as well. And Paul says, he says, so what is the point of any of that? What's, what's the point of publicly professing your faith through baptism and symbolically reenacting Jesus' death and burial and resurrection? What is the point of any of that if you don't even think their resurrection is going to happen? What is the point? That is a giant waste of time. That is the dumbest thing ever, he says. It makes no sense. Likewise, he goes on in verse 30 through 32, he says, if there's no resurrection, then what's the point of risking your life for Jesus and for the message of the gospel? He says, as for us, why do we endanger ourselves every hour? He says, I face death every day. Yes, just as surely as I boast about you in Christ our Lord. For if I fought wild beasts in Ephesus with no more than human hopes, what have I gained? He said, what is the point? of suffering and persecution? And what is the point of hard work and being ill-treated? And what is the point of being seen by everyone as stupid? As wasting your life? What is the point of that if there is no resurrection? Ah, but if there is, then all of that matters. And even the things that are hard and the things that feel meaningless are infused with eternal purpose and meaning. And the things that are hard the things that are difficult, the things that our world looks down on as worthless are the things that matter the most. And so Paul says, if there's no resurrection, what's the point of any of that? And for that matter, he says, what's the point of dying to yourself every day? What's the point of denying your desires and your passions and your lusts? What's the point of living for anyone or anything other than yourself? What is the point of following Jesus down the social and economic ladders of the, of the day if there isn't real life at the end of that? Quoting the philosophers and poets of the day, he writes, if the dead aren't raised, let's eat and drink for tomorrow we die. Right? And he says, we should just live like the pagans then who argue that, that you should just eat and drink and enjoy yourself in this body because all those pleasurable suits, they'll just be done when you don't have a body anymore and you'll miss out, right? It's like the ultimate YOLO, right? Just like, hey, make it worth it, right? You got one chance, live it up, right? Do it. Here's the deal, Paul says, is that that kind of a mindset, it always invariably leads to sin. Every time. See, that's exactly what is happening in this Corinthian church, and the same is true for us. 
You see, if we live thinking that there is no bodily resurrection and that our bodies don't matter, it always leads to sin. It leads to sin of commission and in doing things that we should not do. That was rampant in the Corinthian church, as you'll see as we go through the rest of chapters 5 through 14, right? There are all kinds of sexual sin and drunkenness and gluttony and lying and selfishness and, and mistreating of others and injustice and all kinds of problems. They were living like this world is all that mattered. So make it worth it at whatever cost, Right? See, it's the, it's, the, it's the ideology of hedonism. It's the pursuit of self-fulfillment at any cost. You see, but, but that kind of a mindset that the body doesn't matter, that it doesn't, isn't physically resurrected, it doesn't just lead to sin of commission. It doesn't lead to just doing things we're not supposed to. It leads to sin of omission as well in not doing the things that we should. You see, because we're trying to protect what we have or we're afraid of losing all that we've got, I worry far more that that might actually be the thing that we are falling into as a people of God. You see, we never take risks for Jesus and his kingdom. And we don't trust him enough to give generously. Instead, we just hoard our resources for ourselves because we think that this is all we have. And if we lose this, then we lose everything. This kind of self-preservation and self-protection mindset, it is just as sinister a problem as a hedonistic one is. You see, they both reveal a functional disbelief in the resurrection of the body. And Paul says, when you don't believe that happens, it changes the way you live now. So in verse 34, Paul urges us. He says, wake up. Come back to your senses as you ought and stop sinning. Literally, he tells the Corinthians to sober up, to stop drinking the self-indulgent cultural Kool-Aid. And he tells them to do that not just for their own good, right, but for the good of those who don't know Jesus yet. Verse 34, the end, he says, he says, so come back to your senses as you ought. Stop sinning. Verse 34, for there are some who are ignorant of God. There are people who do not know him and do not have a hope of a resurrection with him. And Paul says, when you live like it doesn't matter, when you live like your bodies don't matter, when you live like there is no resurrection for the future, you are lying about the reality of eternity. And you are misleading people. See, the Christians in Corinth, they were... And they were fine with endorsing the, the self-indulgent attitudes of their culture. They were fine with it, and they justified it on the grounds that there was no resurrection from the body. And so this pleasure-centered life meant that, that, that that's all there was, so go for it. And Paul says there is no place for that kind of an attitude amongst the people of God. Because what we do in this life matters, 
And it matters not just now, it matters for eternity. You see, when we functionally live like there is no resurrection and that our bodies don't matter, we always end up living in opposition to our identity and calling as God's image-bearing people. Always. And it not only impacts us, it impacts those who God has sent us to in order to show them what he is like. You see, and when we do that, our lives, they tell a lie about him and about the reality of a future. See, Paul's reminding the Corinthians and he's reminding us that the resurrection, it is a reminder that what we do in this life, that what we do in these bodies it matters for eternity. And what Jesus did in his body mattered. Because that's what we're remembering and we're celebrating when we take communion. And communion, we're remembering and celebrating is that in that physical life and death and resurrection, that Jesus overcame the curse of sin and death. And once we were slaves to sin, and, but now Christ has come that we might be set free to be and live as his image-bearing people, both now and forever. And I need you to hear this this morning. All of us have failed to be the image-bearing people God has called us to be. Every one of us. And maybe this morning you are here and you are full of guilt and shame because of your sin and the ways that you have lived in the past. And I need you to hear this this morning, that what Jesus has done for you on the cross, it totally pays for all of the ways that you have failed to be who he has made you to be. And if your faith is in him, then you are forgiven and you are free. And there's no more condemnation and there's no more guilt and no more shame. And Jesus instead wants to empower you to be the people he's called you to be. And he wants you to do that in freedom and in joy and life. That's the good news of the gospel. That's the good news of the cross. That we're forgiven and free and that we have a hope of resurrection. Not just one day. Ah, but today. You get resurrection power today because of the person and the work of Jesus. That's what we're remembering and celebrating in communion, people. Like, that's the thing. That's why it matters. So communion, Communion doesn't make you right with God. It doesn't save you. The Bible is clear. It's faith alone in Jesus that does that. And it's only through faith in him that you become his, that you belong to him. And it's a faith that comes in, not because of your good works, but in spite of yourself. That's the good news of his grace. And so if you're here today and you haven't yet placed your faith in Jesus, I just want you to know I'm so glad that you're here. But I'd encourage you, hold off on taking communion. You see, it's about remembering the relationship we have with God because of what he has done. And I don't want you to feel like you're just kind of going through the motions. You're doing something with your body, with your actions. That doesn't matter for eternity. And so instead, my hope and prayer is that you would take hold of Jesus by faith this morning. That you would put your faith in him how you might belong to him so that you might have a hope of resurrection that cannot be taken away. And so if you are here this morning and you've trusted Jesus and believed the gospel or for the first time you have done that this morning, then during our time of worship, go back and take communion. 
If you miss the elements on the way in, there's a table in the back on the left and the right and you can grab them and take communion. Enjoy. Do it with gladness in your heart because Jesus has accomplished for you what you could never do for yourself. And he frees you and he empowers you and he commissions you to be his people and to live resurrected lives today in light of the resurrection hope he secures for you and his resurrection secured for you. And as we do, I want to encourage you, thank God for the promise his resurrection gives for your own resurrection promise. But also ask him to help you to see how that reality needs to continue to shape the way you live today. Maybe you theologically believe in the resurrection, but you're living like a hedonist or a self-preservationist, and you're functionally showing a different kind of hope with your life. Ask him to help you to see that stuff, but to live differently in light of seeing the promise of a resurrection. Not only for your good, but for the good of those who see you and don't yet know him. You see, the promise of a physical resurrection, it calls us to live today in light of eternity, to live this life in constant view of the next for our good and the salvation of our friends and our family and our neighbors and our coworkers and ultimately for God's great glory. So that this world, both now and forever, might be filled with his image-bearing, glory-reflecting people. That's where there's life. And so that, let's pray. King Jesus, uh, I know I have gone long this morning, and I trust that, uh, <laughs> yeah, just that your grace would allow whatever mattered this morning to stick. <laughs> Jesus, thank you that you came in a body to rescue us from sin and death that we committed in a body. And thanks that your plan for us is that we might be with you forever, always in physical body, spirit and soul together as whole persons who get to reflect you and to bring you glory and praise. God, and so empower us, King Jesus, to live today with a confident hope in a future resurrection that also transforms our lives now, that we might be committed to living for you and for your glory surrendered to you, submitted to you, King Jesus. God, knowing that you died for us to forgive us and you rose conquering Satan and sin and death, and so too will we if our faith is in you. God, help that reality to change us every day. Amen.